You're listening to the Economics Review Podcast with your host, Adi Golcha. From Congress to Wall Street and finance to philosophy, tune into the Economics Review to hear from world-leading experts on current events and cutting-edge research. Make sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome back to the Economics Review. Our guest today covers renewable energy and utilities for the Wall Street Journal. Her team's reporting on PG&E has been honored with a Barlett and Steele Award for Business Investigative Journalism, the Thomas L. Stokes Award for Energy and Environmental Reporting, and was named a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize in 2020. Her latest book is titled California Burning, The Fall of Pacific Gas and Electric and What It Means for America's Power Grid. It's my pleasure to welcome to the show, Catherine Blunt. Thank you so much for joining us on the show. Thank you for having me. Glad to be here. Firstly, as always, I'd like to start off by asking you to introduce yourself and tell us a bit about your background. Sure. So uh, as you mentioned, I, I work for the Wall Street Journal. I actually joined the journal um, just days before the campfire in 2018, which was ignited by a PG&E power line. We're going to talk a lot about that in the show, I'm sure. But I've been you know, focused closely on PG&E ever since, um, and I've been a journalist my entire career. I started in uh, Texas, um, and then moved to California last year, um, given my the, the area of my focus and how critical California is becoming and as we examine energy issues more broadly. Okay, so your latest book is titled California Burning, The Fall of Pacific Gas and Electric and What It Means for America's Power Grid. So I wanted to start by asking about the event that prompted unprecedented national interest in PG&E which was the 2018 campfire that killed 85 people and was caused by a worn-out hook that hadn't been replaced in almost 100 years. So, Catherine, can you tell us a bit about why PG&E didn't perform proper maintenance, how they got away with it, and what the impact of the fires has been? Sure. So, as you mentioned, that fire ignited on November 8th, 2018, when a hook about the width of a fist broke roughly in half and dropped a live wire that showered the ground with sparks, and within hours, the fire was entirely out of control. Killed 84 people. There was an 85th individual who died by suicide um, because he couldn't escape the flames, but his death wasn't directly attributable to the fire. But suffice to say, it was, um, I mean, just an extreme tragedy. Um, devastating for that area, certainly, and the, the families who were impacted by this really great loss. And um, this prompted uh, Butte County prosecutors, the county where the fire started, launched a very significant investigation into what transpired within PG&E that allowed for this to happen. And one of the findings was was really quite simple. It was that they had reduced inspection frequency and thoroughness over time. And as a result, inspectors within the company weren't aware of the extent of the uh, damage to the hook, which had occurred because it was rocking on its hanger plate for 100 years, wearing down little by little with every windstorm. Um, but because they hadn't gotten close enough to see that wear, they hadn't documented it and therefore hadn't addressed it. Um, this was one of numerous fires that were ignited by the company's power lines between 2015 and 2017. Um, nearly uh, nearly 20 of them ignited in, t- in 2017 in the wine country area when tree branches got tangled in live wires. Um, and then this, the fire in 2018, the campfire, was sort of the straw that broke the camel's back in terms of the overall liability that the company faced as a result of these disasters. Um, it estimated it owed $30 billion, uh, as a result and sought bankruptcy protection. 
So next I wanted to go a bit further back in history and talk about how and why electrical companies across the U.S. have been able to establish monopolies in the first place. So unlike almost all consumer products, the odds are that you only have one company from whom to get your electricity. It doesn't matter how poorly they operate, you literally have no choice but to get your utilities from them. So Catherine, how did we get the system of utility monopolies all across the country, and, and what are the advantages and disadvantages of this? When um, power companies were forming in the late 1800s and early 1900s, there, were, there was competition among them. Um, PG&E grew by acquiring a number of, of tiny power companies that were cropping up across Northern California to deliver this relatively new commodity, right? Electricity was still something that was somewhat experimental. It only ever had really one real competitor um, over time, and that was a company called Great Western Power that was working to build a big hydroelectric system from the Sierra foothills to San Francisco. And these companies competed until about 1930, at which time they merged. And, you know, between 1900 or so and 1930, you begin to see the solidification of this conventional wisdom that electric electricity providers should operate as monopolies and should be given that privilege in exchange for um, agreeing to regulatory oversight. And the reason why is that it's a very capital intensive business, especially at the time when these companies were building up big power lines, big power plants. Um, the idea being that the, the profit mo- or the, um, you shouldn't build duplicative infrastructure, right? It's, it's, it would be most efficient if you had one company that was tasked with, with building all of this. And, uh, you know, it, it worked well for in, in many regions for a period of time. I mean, it wasn't perfect. There was certainly a number of different kind of controversies that occurred in the, you know, the first half of the 20th century and the second half all for, for different reasons. But so I, these companies collectively were able to build a lot of critical infrastructure that we still rely on today. And, um, the, of course, the, but the idea of the monopoly, though, is that strong regulatory oversight is needed to uh, make sure that they're spending appropriately, you know, maintaining the safety of these systems that carry high voltage power over many miles and um, you know, just acting in, in the best interest of, of the public, of the customer. And, um, you know, for various reasons and a number of challenges emerged around the 1970s and 1980s that sort of start began to challenge this thinking a little bit. But, you know, as you say, for the most part, in terms of the the end customer, you know, the retail customer, for, in most places is still buying electricity from these monopolies. So it's been uh, it's been a tough system to change, even though there has been some challenges with um, regulatory oversight and other things in recent years. Because these companies, at least for the retail consumer, they, they have a monopoly. Wouldn't this just encourage complacency? I mean, because they literally are prevented from a regulatory standpoint from having any competition whatsoever, can't they? I mean, it doesn't matter how poor the service they offer is. I mean, customers will never have any choice. Yeah, I mean, that's that's somewhat true. I mean, there's places in which um, there's a different there's tr- different choices in the way that you can procure electricity and like for example i mean there's retail competition in texas you can it's becoming more viable to have your own generation in the form of solar and, and storage and, and other things but for the most part most everybody is reliant on this big centralized infrastructure the big transmission lines that carry power from generating stations to substations the distribution networks that serve neighborhoods and businesses and it's it's really, I mean, that's where the monopoly comes in. Like the, the companies that oversee the maintenance of that infrastructure, they are monopolies. And, um, you know, there has been criticism over time that in with lacking 
the lack of competition is one reason why you might not see the same sort of drive to innovate or or satisfy customers, right? I mean, that's that's the criticism of any monopoly. And um, so the idea there, of course, is that you're supposed to have strong regulatory oversight to, to counter that and to you know push them to make sure that they are always doing what's in the best interest of the public. But some of these companies are so large and have seen you know, the emergence of new risks over the last couple of decades that have been very difficult to deal with from a regulatory standpoint. So, um, you know, it's it's not a perfect system by any means. Yeah, and so I did I did want to talk a little bit about oversight as well, and specifically the structure um, of oversight for utility companies across the country. So unlike most companies, um, utility companies are, are typically regulated by some kind of government oversight board and have provisions in place to limit how much money they can make. However, at, at the same time, because they're able to pass along costs to consumers, they, they essentially get a guaranteed return on their capital expenditures. This means that they have incentives to build new stuff as opposed to conducting maintenance. Um, given this structure, one can see why robust independent oversight is absolutely essential. However, not only is, is oversight often lacking, but there are routine corruption scandals all, all across the country. I mean, we, we've all heard of the, the story in Alabama. You know, the, the oversight board there is, is elected. Um, it's, it's very politically motivated, very politically charged. I mean, there's, there's just been a, a whole huge oversight in, in sorry, um, there, there's been, yeah, a, a whole in, in oversight, uh, I mean, in, in so many different places. So, so can you tell us a bit about um, the, the failings of, of oversight for utility companies and, and what they ought to be doing differently moving forward to prevent more disasters and fires and that sort of thing? Well, speaking in the context of PG&E, so um, one of the challenges that the regulatory body faced in overseeing PG&E was just, I mean, it's simple. It was understaffed and underfunded. Uh, starting in around, you know, the roughly the 2005 timeframe, California uh, began setting some very ambitious targets for carbon reduction, and that involved um, procuring a lot of wind and solar resources. And it was the utility companies that were tasked with that procurement. Um, for various reasons, these companies were not going to be involved in building the wind and solar farms, but rather they were tasked with contracting for that power from developers. And the Public Utilities Commission, the oversight body, was tasked with overseeing the procurement and the signing of those contracts. And that really within the division was, that was the place to be. It was the, it was the division with the most resources, with the most cachet. Um, and, you know, by contrast, the safety division was stretched too thin to have meaningful oversight of a company the size of PG&E, as well as the other large utilities in the state, because it's not, PG&E is not the only focus of the regulator. And so there's, there's been, you know, there's a few issues in which, so they, they, they struggled to have meaningful oversight of system maintenance, but both PG&E and the regulator also under, and underestimated the extent to which the risk within PG&E's service territory was changing as the climate changed, as drought became more severe, as tens of millions of trees died, heightening the consequence of a single spark from a faulty power line. The regulator had been working since 2007 or 2008 to push the Southern California utilities to do more to address the threat of fire because that region has historically faced the, um, you know, the highest wildfire risk. But that was quickly changing. You know, Northern California was becoming just as risky and both the company and the regulator were slow to recognize it. So some of this is the fact that things are changing in a way that it's hard to predict and hard to see as it happens in real time. And part of it is that 
you know, certainly the California Public Utilities Commission, but other regulatory bodies across the country may not be especially well equipped to oversee system safety, especially as some of these new risks emerge. So it is, I mean, the the role of the regulator and the sort of the culpability that it has in all this is a cautionary tale as we see new, you know, risk patterns emerge elsewhere. Okay, so next I wanted to ask about the the role of climate change that you discuss in the book. So given the current predictions of of rising temperatures and increasingly um, extreme weather events, it seems as though the power grid is poised to become more unreliable. At the same time, however, utility companies in many areas have moved to limit alternatives like solar panels, taking steps to ban or make it financially prohibitive. So can you tell us a bit about the challenges that the power grid utility companies and consumers face moving forward, given the impact of climate change? Across the country, weather, more extreme weather events are either becoming more common or more severe. And in many cases, scientists have said that these changing patterns are linked to a changing climate. And so that means that utilities everywhere are facing new risks to the system. Um, you know, weather patterns that they hadn't really seen before or had to prepare for in the same way. And so, um, you know, a lot of utilities use backward looking modeling to do risk prediction and to decide how to invest in their infrastructure. Um, that's becoming less useful as the future becomes more sort of uncertain and new risk modes um, appear. And so, yeah. And so, it, I mean, there's a few things bearing on reliability right now. The cl- change in climate is one putting new stresses on the grid. The grid is also very old. I mean, we're talking about the emergence of some of these monopolies at the early 20th century. Our, some of our infrastructure is truly that old, or a relic of that era. So it's becoming more prone to failure just by virtue of the fact that it's getting older. And then, you know, the third thing that is going to be challenging to manage in the coming years is that as we work to transition to cleaner energy sources to address climate change, adding more wind and solar, um, which of course have variable output based on weather and time of day, Making sure that the you know the conventional power plants that are being retired are replaced uh, in full with wind and solar and storage to store that output for use when production declines. Managing the pace of that's tough, and supply and demand has to be kept in in constant balance to um, prevent against reliability issues. So, kind of a three part challenge currently. And to your question about distributed generation, rooftop solar. Rooftop solar, especially paired with with batteries that allow the homeowner to operate somewhat autonomously from the grid um, under most, you know, some cases, uh, has the potential to um, reduce the amount of centralized infrastructure that we need. But from where we stand now, it's hard to see a day in which we don't need it at all. So it is incumbent upon these large companies to maintain it appropriately, especially as these reliability risks become more acute. Okay, so next I wanted to, to ask a bit about the policy side to all this. Um, so, I mean, w- there's there's been a lot of debate about you know oversight and and how to properly regulate and and, and oversee um, these utility companies, especially PG&E. But so I, I wanted to first of all start by asking you if you woke up tomorrow, you found yourself with executive unilateral control over federal, state, local governments, um, you name it. What would be the the best case scenario you would advocate for moving forward to prevent or or limit further disasters and fires from occurring? You know, barring political viability. Um, it's, I mean, I mean, it's, it's, a, it's somewhat of an impossible question to answer. There's, I mean, there's the solution here is so multifaceted. I mean, 
in terms of helping to you know, ease the energy transition, new transmission lines are expected to help, but they can be very difficult to build. So removing some of those roadblocks may help with a lot of the near-term challenges. Um, you know, there needs to be a lot of spending on the infrastructure that we have currently. It needs to be, it needs to be upgraded because it is old. And it also needs to be built to withstand not only new standards um, that, uh, you know, new standards that can withstand some of the more extreme weather events and weather patterns that we're seeing, but also, you know, a new standard that can support a new era of electricity demand. Electricity demand has plateaued in the United States for a long time as a result of energy efficiency and other things. We're also trying to add a lot of EVs to the grid, doing more to electrify homes and businesses, reducing reliance on natural gas across the board, which means that more electricity is going to be consumed and the infrastructure needs to be able to support that. So, you know, spending currently is, is a challenging prospect because um, we're in a very inflationary environment in which it's becoming more expensive to produce electricity. Those costs are passed on to customers in a place like California, where the, of course, fire risks and other things are very acute. Rates are already very high. So cost management's a challenge. But I mean, at the end of the day, this comes down to investing in critical infrastructure and building more of it to support where we're trying to go collectively. And it's not an easy prospect whatsoever. But um you know, I'm, I'll, people a lot smarter than me are working on this issue. So I, I like, hope to see some, you know, that we see some progress in the coming years. Okay. And I mean, now now talking about the, the policy side to this within political viability constraints, you know, that was sort of a, a best case scenario. What what do you see is, is likely moving forward? I mean, we've seen PG&E over, over the past few years, not just, it's not just a 2018 fire. There are hundreds of fires constantly all, all the time. And so uh, th- there's still a lot of work that needs to be done with with oversight, with maintenance, that that sort of thing. So do you see regulators or not even regulators, I mean, legislators moving forward with some sort of robust oversight or restructuring or, or something like that that implements some sort of actual real effective change for PG&E? Yeah, I mean, there's, I mean, we're kind of talking about two levels of policy here throughout the show. There's state level policy and there's federal policy and state level in California, legislators have had to take a number of measures in recent years to help not only PG&E, but the state's other utilities manage wildfire liability cost. Because, you know, having substantial financial burdens such as PG&E experienced uh, has the potential to really kind of jeopardize the economic health of the entire state. And so they've had to take steps to manage that. They've also taken steps to try to help the utilities, especially PG&E, um, do more to address wildfire risk from an infrastructure investment standpoint. There's a bill under consideration now that would probably help potentially PG&E manage some of the cost of burying wires. The wires are underground, they can start fires. So that's the benefit of that. And um, of course, at the federal level, we saw the bipartisan infrastructure bill passed late last year, as well as the um, Inflation Reduction Act here just recently. Both of them allocate a lot of money toward um, clean energy investments, trying to bring new projects online. And they think some money is allocated for helping to address issues with aging infrastructure, though those pieces of legislation are most like primarily focused on, you know, new investments, whether it be new transmission, new wind, new solar, new batteries. And in, I mean, in theory, it's, uh, you know, very, could be very helpful in the overall transition, but there's also practical realities to contend with in that we're seeing supply chain issues. We are seeing the effects of inflation. And so, you know, just the allocation of money isn't necessarily enough to ease some of those roadblocks. So 
you know, as always with any sort of set of policy questions, you're kind of talking about what could be beneficial in theory and what's ultimately going to be beneficial in practice. So I think it's safe to say, though, that, um, you know, legislators at every level are beginning to recognize the need to do more to address system risk from a safety standpoint, as well as do more to try to speed up the energy transition and, and manage through some of the pinch points that we were talking earlier, but it remains to be seen how that'll play out in the next few years. Okay. And not just, not just about the utility companies, but with regards to oversight, what is it that state and federal legislators should be doing to set up better, better oversight boards? Lawmakers, especially, you know, governors across states have a, have a role in choosing who has regulatory oversight over the utility companies. You know, I think, um, certainly choosing folks with the sort of experience to understand and manage through these challenges is, is, is one thing that I think that could be beneficial. It's not to say that it's not common practice, but I think, you know, I think the role of the utility regulator is only becoming more important. So, you know, treating those decisions with perhaps even more care becomes, uh, becomes critical. So, um, that's, I mean, that's one example. It's like ultimately the, and then of course, like they also have a role in, in determining the resources allocated to the regulatory body and how those resources are allocated by division. And so, you know, to the extent that the, the regulator is becoming more important and perhaps needs more resources to confront some of these risks, that's a conversation that needs to be had as well. In in the long run, do you see any any possibility for breaking up the monopolies? Um, you know, there's been a fair fair share of people that have, have called for publicizing the the companies, um, making them publicly owned or, or government run. You know, even even in the absence of that, um, do you think that that going forward, the next fifty hundred years, are we going to still have monopolies? Probably. Um, I think that in most cases, what's going to happen is that we're going to try to do better with the system that we have. There's, it's hard, it's hard to turn back the clock on this kind of stuff. It's not to say that it's impossible. Um, but also, you know, the ownership question may solve certain problems by removing the profit motive, but you know, it, it doesn't necessarily fix everything. It's not a, it's not a universal solve. And so there's a lot of complex questions that are raised when you have to debate the change in ownership structure. I think that it tends to be the knee jerk for a lot of people and saying that would fix everything. It, it may fix some things, but it also may introduce other challenges and it's sort of different company by company and region by region. So, um, it's not to say that you, you wouldn't see any effort or even any successful effort to make this happen in certain places. If, if the, you know, the publicly traded company can't make the necessary can't take the necessary steps to address whatever problems we're talking about. And in this instance, this hypothetical instance, I think that, you know, for the most part, even PG&E's experience, right, that the, the total failure in many respects of this company, it still emerged from a second bankruptcy and investor-owned utility, despite the fact that there were other options on the table. And so you'll probably see more of that. Um, but, you know, it'll be interesting. It'll be interesting if there become more efforts nationwide to call for some kind of change and whether that change can be effectively implemented, right? Because if we're talking about changes in ownership structure, it's, it's you know, all of a sudden it's a taxpayer issue. It's a political issue in a way that is even more acute than if we're talking about the investor-owned utilities. In California, there's a certain liability construct that affects utilities no matter who owns it. You know, there's just, there's a million questions to be answered. So it's it's tough to predict, but 
we'll, we'll, we'll see what happens. It'll be certainly interesting. So finally, I wanted to finish off today by asking if there was anything that you learned or any trends that you observed in, in researching or writing this book that were especially surprising or that you didn't expect. One disaster that PG&E had to contend with in 2010 was the explosion of a gas transmission pipeline south of San Francisco in the um, town of San Bruno. It destroyed a neighborhood and it killed eight people. A federal investigation following that disaster um, showed that the company had reduced the thoroughness and the frequency of its gas transmission inspections for a number of reasons. And there ended up being some very clear parallels to um, the campfire disaster in a way that I didn't totally anticipate. I didn't realize just how similar some of the trends were. There were some differences, but um, cost pressures emerged for for similar reasons in both cases with similar outcomes. So that was um, certainly interesting to study. All right. Well, those are all the questions that I have for you today. Thank you so much for joining us on the show. Thank you for having me. Enjoyed the conversation. Catherine Blunt's latest book is titled California Burning, The Fall of Pacific Gas and Electric and What It Means for America's Power Grid. Thank you, everyone, for listening to the Economics Review. And as always, we'll be back soon with the latest.